Well, if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to turn in them to Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. If you were with us last week, you will recall that we considered how the apostles had a vision problem. They were wearing the spectacles of their own sinful reason, assumptions, and expectations, and Jesus was calling them to put on the spectacles of the cross. Today, we continue to see this theme of poor vision being played out in the life of this blind beggar, one who is physically blind. So Luke chapter 18, verses 35 through 43. Please pay careful attention, for this is the holy and inspired word of our Lord. As Jesus drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside, begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. And when he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God. And all the people, when they saw it, gave praise to God. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. May he write this word upon our hearts this morning. Well, everyone knows that things are not as they should be. We get sick. We endure physical pain, weakness, and and hardship. People die. Far too many people die prematurely. Things are not as they should be. And this is true not just in a physical sense, but also in a spiritual sense. Spiritually speaking, we are not healthy either. We look within our hearts and we see that our hearts are filled with greed and and bitterness which boils over into joylessness, discontentment, a lack of satisfaction, conflict and strife everywhere we turn. Things are not as they should be. No matter what one's religious views are, I think this is, everyone has this sense. Every human being living in this present world has a sense, a gnawing sense that things are not as they should be. Apart from God's revelation of himself, both in the law and the gospel, there is really no framework to properly diagnose this human predicament that we all find ourselves in. And there is no proper framework to offer a definitive hope and solution, remedy, to this human predicament. Now, if you take the the dominant worldview in our culture today, which is uh, atheistic naturalism, there is no framework to diagnose the things that we all intuitively feel. Because these hardships are just merely natural phenomena. 
the outworkings of, of the evolutionary process. And there is no definitive hope that can be offered. Just we are called to then just create our own meaning out of the life that we've been given. In fact, there's one 19th century philosopher who himself was an atheist, and a very consistent atheist at that. And he recognized that with the death of God, which occurred in the beginning of the Enlightenment, this results in, or should result in a radical reworking of our worldview, our value system, our moral system. And he indicted many people in the West for not living according to their belief. If you believe God is dead, then you shouldn't be relying upon the capital of Christianity. You need to rework your value system. You need to rework your morality. And he recognized that if all there is is this natural world, then the categories of good and bad are merely arbitrary, subjective culturally and temperamentally conditioned categories. There can be as many definitions as there are definers. In fact, he once wrote in a letter to his friend in 1883 after a volcano erupted in, in, on the island of Java, which just killed hundreds of thousands of people. And he said, you know, 200,000 people utterly wiped out. How marvelous. Again, if God is dead, who is to say this isn't a wonderful thing? But here in this passage, we come across the last healing narrative in Luke's gospel. The last healing narrative in Luke's gospel. And in all of Jesus' healing narratives, there's much more going on than what appears to be there on the surface. These healing narratives are pregnant with meaning. It's not just Jesus temporarily helping someone in the first century. That's what appears to be on the surface, but there's much more going on than, than that. In fact, in this passage, I believe Luke is diagnosing for us the human predicament. The human predicament that we all intuitively know exists physically and spiritually. But Luke also is prescribing a sure remedy in the healing power of Jesus' word. So this passage affirms for us what we all know to be true. We are in a predicament. Things are not as they should be. But it also offers us a definitive hope in light of that predicament. I'd like to argue that this blind beggar that we come across in this passage is a microcosm for this human predicament that we all live under. A microcosm refers to something that stands as a miniature version of something that's much broader, much bigger. Blind beggar is a microcosm of the human predicament that we all endure in this age. And Jesus' healing of this blind beggar, which on the surface seems to be very local and specific, also is a microcosm of his greater mission to remedy this human predicament. So those are the two things I'd like us to consider this morning. So first, this blind beggar is given to us as a microcosm of our human predicament. It represents, illustrates this much larger problem that we all have. Now we are told in this passage that Jesus is nearing the city of Jericho. 
You may recall back in chapter 9, we were told that Jesus and his disciples have transitioned from the region of Galilee to start uh, their journey to Jerusalem to do what Jesus came to this earth to do, to die, to suffer, to die, to rise again. And Jericho is only 15 miles from Jerusalem, which means that we are approaching the very climax of this book. And as Jesus and this great crowd that is surrounding him, as they are nearing city limits, they come across this blind beggar on the side of the road. And we are told that this beggar is indeed blind, which likely meant that he was not able to work and earn a livable wage. He was largely dependent upon the charity of others just for his daily sustenance. He was a beggar. And due to this very hard existence that he endured, his life probably would have been cut short. So this blind beggar represents, it's a micro, is a microcosm of this human predicament that we all endure, both physically and spiritually in this age. So this blind beggar first represents life under the common curse, our physical life under the common curse. Now, if you remember, uh, recall, or, or remember the, back to the very beginning of your Bibles, Genesis 1, Genesis 2, we encounter a God who works, and he works through the instrumentation of his word. There's repetition in Genesis 1 of God speaking, and God said, and it was so. It's a structuring device in Genesis 1. But we also see that this God who works also judges his work. So at the end of each day of creation, we come across this phrase which says, and God saw that it was good. So God worked, and then God looked upon his creation. God saw his creation, and rendered a judgment. It was good. After he was done working and judging, he entered into his seventh-day Sabbath rest. Now, this, this language of God looking upon his creation and rendering a judgment is, is quite interesting. It's almost as if the presentation we have of God here is, is a God who is, is scrutinizing, evaluating, looking upon his creation, as, as a craftsman would scrutinize and evaluate a, a project that he or she just finished. He then renders this just and objective judgment. Now, of course, we know that God doesn't literally work as we work. He doesn't literally have eyes to see as we have eyes to see. God doesn't rest as we rest. This is anthropomorphic language. And the reason why God speaks in this way is so that we as finite creatures would know something of who he is and what it means for us to be made in the image of God. Because we are made in the image of the God of Genesis 1 and 2. Which means we are made to work as God worked. We are made to make judgments, just judgments as God made just, judge, judge, just judgments. And so, one of the reasons why I believe God gave us physical eyes was so that we could mirror God in making these judge judgments. So that we could exercise dominion over this creation. So that we could evaluate, scrutinize, and render objective just judgments over our, the work of our hands. And so in Genesis 3, when God curses the man and the woman and says that now this work is going to be 
laborious and toilsome, what this means is that now people are literally going to have eye problems. Blindness didn't exist before the curse. This blind man likely didn't work, couldn't earn a livable wage. Part of that curse is that our physical eyes are affected. We can't make the, the judgments that we were called to make as image bearers of God. But I, I would imagine no one here is physically blind. We, some of us might have poor eyes, might need glasses, contacts. But we all probably can think of physical weaknesses that we have. Pain, hardships that we endure that make our work in this world toilsome. And so, this blind beggar represents all of our lives under the common curse. We all experience the hardship of the weakness of our bodies as we seek to work as God called, calls us to work as his image bearers. This blind beggar also represents the spiritual predicament. So it's not just the, the physical predicament that is represented in this blind beggar, but this blind beggar also represents our spiritual predicament. Many times in Scripture, Scripture refers to our spiritual situation in the language of physical ailments and sickness. So, for instance, Jeremiah 17, 9, we read that the heart is desperately sick beyond all measure. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he says that he compares our spiritual predicament to physical blindness. Listen to what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. He says, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Paul is describing our spiritual predicament as spiritual blindness. We are blind to the light, the glory of the gospel of God because of our sin, because we are in league with the evil one ever since Adam broke covenant with his God. We reflected a little bit on this, this point last week when, when we considered the disciples' poor vision. Uh, they, they were looking at things all wrong. They were unable to see the true identity and mission of Jesus. They had a vision problem. Well, this man's economic conditions also is illustrative of our spiritual predicament. So, for instance, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9, Paul, in, in these chapters, are calling Christians to be generous with their resources. And the ground that he gives for our generosity is the generosity that we've received in Christ. The reason we are to be motivated to be generous with our resources is because of the immense generosity that you and I have received in Christ. And so in 2 Corinthians 8 verse 9, he says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you too might become rich. What Paul is saying here is that Christ, Christ was rich. He's the eternal Son of God. He didn't, his existence didn't 
begin when he came to this earth? The second person, the Trinity. He was rich. But yet he became poor. He took upon himself a human nature. He lived life under the common curse. He took upon himself our sin as he hung on that tree. He took upon himself our poverty so that we might become rich. So that he might be able to robe us in his life of good works. So that he might grant us the right to his eternal kingdom. Paul here is saying that we, in our own sinful state, we're impoverished. We are beggars. We are like, the, like Lazarus, who is laying out before the gates of the rich man. This is who we are. We're naked. We're exposed. We have no home. We're orphans. We're beggars. It's what Luther said. It's reported that on his deathbed, he said, we are beggars, this is true. And so in this blind beggar, we have a picture, both of our physical life under the common curse, but also our spiritual life, our spiritual predicament, because we are in Adam. We are spiritually blind apart from the Spirit's illumination. We are spiritual beggars according to our own merits. This blind beggar is a microcosm of the human predicament, physically and spiritually. Notice this blind beggar's response. I, I have to imagine he recognizes something of, of who he is, of this human predicament. And, and notice that he doesn't do what the rich young ruler did a few passages ago. The rich young ruler who was crushed by God's law, realized he couldn't earn God's kingdom by his own merits, what does he do? He walks away sorrowfully. But this blind beggar recognizes that he doesn't have anything to bring to the table. But rather than turning away from Christ, he cries out to Christ. And we see in this blind beggar's confession, his recognition that Jesus is both the son of David, so he recognizes Jesus' identity and Jesus' mission. So twice we see in this passage this blind beggar calling out to Jesus as the son of David. This is the first public declaration in Luke's gospel that Jesus is the son of David. And notice who it's coming from. The mouth of a blind beggar. Not someone we would expect to make this connection. The son of David. This is that Davidic son that was promised to God's people centuries ago. Who would have an everlasting kingdom. Who would perfectly obey God's law as all of God, Israel's kings were called to do. This is the son of David. This blind beggar recognizes something of Jesus' identity. But he also recognizes something of Jesus' mission. Because he says, son of David, have mercy on me. Twice he calls out for mercy. He realizes that Jesus' mission is not to set up a theocratic state to deliver God's people from the tyranny of, of the Romans. What this blind beggar cares about is receiving mercy from God. 
This is exactly what Isaiah the prophet said when he was prophesying about the Messiah in Isaiah 61. Isaiah said that this Messiah, the servant of the Lord who is to come, he would be the one who would show mercy to the poor, to the brokenhearted, to captives, and to those who are blind. And then in Luke chapter 4, as Jesus is beginning his public ministry, he quotes Isaiah 61 and says, I am the one. I'm here to fulfill this prophecy. So this blind beggar recognizes something of Jesus' identity and his mission. So let me ask you, do you see yourself in this blind beggar? Do you experience, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians, your outer self wasting away? The weakness of our minds and our bodies and in this life under the common curse? Do you see yourself apart from the Spirit's illumination as utterly blind to the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ? Jesus said to Nicodemus in John 3 that apart from regeneration, from being born again, one cannot see the kingdom of God. Do you see yourself apart from the merits of Christ as being a beggar? Nothing to boast in. Lastly, do you you see your need for Jesus and cry out for him as the son of David, the one who loves to show mercy to beggars, who loves to show mercy to the blind? Let's consider now for a few moments Jesus' healing of, of this man. I believe that Jesus' healing of this blind beggar again serves as a microcosm of his greater mission. Jesus didn't come to this earth just to temporarily alleviate the hardships and suffering of a, a few individuals in the first century. This blind beggar would die in another 10, 15, 20 years. So it's a temporary solution. Thus, this is illustrative of Jesus' greater mission to deal with the human predicament. And so notice what Jesus does in response to this cry of this blind beggar. He stops and he commands this crowd, and the crowd very much has a negative uh, connotation, both in this passage and the passage to come after this. He stops and he commands the crowd to bring over this blind beggar. And he asks this this beggar what what he wants from him. And of course, we already know what this blind beggar is going to say. Lord, help me recover my sight. And Jesus then responds. He says, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And Luke adds, and immediately he recovered his sight. So this is the sixth healing in Luke's gospel, which includes this word immediately. The sixth healing in Luke's gospel, where after Jesus heals an individual, Luke adds this word immediately. And of those six healings, five of them, Jesus uses the instrument of his word. It's interesting to think about the the how behind Jesus' healings. He, He could have healed these individuals any way he wanted. He could have snapped his fingers. He could have just thought a thought and these individuals could be healed. But 
most of the time he uses his word to accomplish his healings. Thus we see the, the power and immediacy of Jesus' word to bring about healing transformation in the, in the lives of, of people. And these healings are, are speech acts, which, mean, which means by the very utterance of, 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 of these words, reality is affected. When Jesus says, recover your sight, his blindness dissipates. So sort of like a, a minister in, in a wedding service when he makes the pronouncement, reality is affected. A marriage is born by the very utterance of speech. This is what we see happening here with Jesus and his words. And Jesus also includes this phrase, which also is a very common phrase in his healing narratives. He says to this blind beggar, your faith has made you well. Now in the original language, this phrase, has made you well, is just one word. And it's the verb for, 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 for salvation, to save. So one could render it, your faith has saved you. This then leads to the question, well, what does Jesus mean? Is Jesus saying that your faith has healed your physical blindness? Or is he saying that your faith has brought you spiritual salvation? Which one is it? Is Jesus referring to this man's physical predicament or a spiritual predicament? Of course, the, the, the physical predicament is being addressed here because this man does regain his sight. But I also think that Jesus is saying that his spiritual predicament is also being addressed. Why? Well, I think Jesus is intentionally... Uh, connecting this idea of salvation with his faith. And just moments ago, we considered how this blind beggar, in a very extraordinary way, recognized Jesus' identity and mission. You already see the Spirit changing his heart, the eyes of his heart, to see who Jesus is. And so I think Jesus, when he says, your faith has made you well, he's saying that Jesus has healed this man's spiritual and physical predicament. His physical blindness and his spiritual blindness. His physical economic conditions, no doubt this man may be able to now get a job and, and make a livable wage. And his spiritual impoverishment. He has a right to the kingdom of God. So Jesus, through his word, has the uh, authority to reverse the curse. Meaning he has the authority through his word to reverse that common curse that we all live under. And this physical healing points forward to that definitive healing that he will bring about in the resurrection of the body on the last day. But Jesus also has the authority through his word to forgive sins. To accomplish spiritual transformation. And so in this age we see that Jesus continues to use his word to accomplish spiritual transformation in his people. But then in the age to come... Jesus will use his word to bring about physical transformation in the resurrection of the body. So I'd like to briefly, briefly consider those two aspects of how Jesus continues to work through his word. As I mentioned, this age, our bodies don't taste of redemption yet. It's our souls that taste of redemption. 
And Jesus continues to use his word to bring about this healing, transformative work in our souls and spiritual lives. And so we read in in numerous occasions, uh, for instance, in Hebrews chapter 4, that the word of God is living and active. It's living and active. Isaiah 55, uh, the prophet says that God's word is effective. Just as the rain comes down to this earth and accomplishes its purposes of bringing life to this uh, creation, so too God's word accomplishes his purpose. Accomplishes his purpose. The word of God is living, it's active, it's, a, it's effectual. Now in scripture, the word of God came to the people of old in many different ways. Visions, dreams, direct revelations, and written scrolls and and and. and um, and, and scriptures. But for us today, in the post-apostolic era, the only means by which we partake of the Word of God is through the inscripturated Word of God. God's not promised to give us direct revelations apart from Scripture. What we have for the Word of God is the inscripturated Word of God. And we have to have confidence that Jesus continues to work through this Word. To bring about spiritual transformation among his people. The work of regeneration and transformation no less um, as miraculous as him healing the eyes of this blind man 2,000 years ago. Jesus continues to work through his word to bring about spiritual transformation. Now that's probably not controversial for uh, most conservative Christians that there's power in, in, in the word of God. But I'd like to press a little bit into how we receive the Word of God. That's not spoken of quite as often. Yes, the Word of God is important. But how do we receive the Word of God? Scripture tells us that's also a very important question to ask. I think for many people, especially in our day and age, in America, the way we would answer that question is the most important way in which we partake of the word of God is as we do so personally and privately. But throughout scripture we see it's actually the opposite. The main way in which God blesses his people through his word is publicly and communally. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Hear. Luther says that the the ear is the organ of the Christian. And then Paul, as he is writing to Timothy who really represents the post-apostolic church, he says... Make sure that you devote yourself to the preaching of the word. In season, out season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with complete patience and teaching. Why? Because it's through that public preaching and reading of God's word that God primarily blesses his people. And we don't have to pit the public against the private, but we also have to realize the emphasis of scripture. The main way in which God blesses his people is through the preaching of his word. And especially in our day and age when we, we take in so, informa- so much information. <laughs> I think many Christians today have the privilege of, of, of taking in lots of spiritual content. But one of, the, one of the, the drawbacks to the day and age in which we live is we're not very good at internalizing what we do here. We love taking in information, but we don't do very well in internalizing, truly listening to the things that we do here and digest them spiritually. 
So Jesus continues to work powerfully through his word as it's preached in the context of, of his local church. But we also are looking forward to that day when Jesus will, through his word, bring about physical restoration in the resurrection of the body. So listen to what we read in Revelation 21, verse 5. And he who is seated on the throne, Jesus himself, says, Behold, I am making all things new. The ultimate speech act. When Jesus will come again. And through the mere utterance of a word, bring in the new heavens and the new earth. And all our physical weaknesses and ailments and struggles that we endure in this life will be not temporarily alleviated, but definitively and finally healed and restored. So congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in this passage we have a diagnosis of the human predicament. This blind beggar is a microcosm of the, the predicament that we all face physically and spiritually, but we also are given a sure remedy in the healing power of Jesus' word. And this word transforms us spiritually in this age, but we are looking forward to, in hope, to the appearing of the Son of God who will truly make all things new. So let us pray. Our Father who is in heaven, we give thanks for... Uh, speaking to us through your scriptures. And we give thanks for your son, Jesus Christ, who continues to work in us and, and through us uh, by his spirit and word. And we pray that, uh, that he would continue to sanctify us and conform us to the image of his likeness. And, we, and oh Lord, we look forward to that, that day that lies ahead of us. When Christ will return in all power and glory and will make all things new. May you remind us of this glorious inheritance that is ours by virtue of Christ and his work on our behalf. We ask all these things in his name.